0: Open the scriptures this morning to Second Corinthians chapter ten, please. Second Corinthians chapter ten. And we're going to read the first six verses of this chapter. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when present. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some, who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Trust that God will add a blessing to his word this morning. Well, we've had a subject shift, as you can see. The last two chapters have been on giving, and we have an important word in verse 1 of chapter 10. It is the word now, so indicating a complete subject shift. But as I was preparing this message and going over it and reading and rereading it, I was reminded of the interest that I have in both ancient and modern history, just for your information. But probably thanks to my wife over many years, I have a special fascination with the ebb and flow of reigning monarchs, military superpowers, and often their infamous leaders. And in conjunction with that, recently I have watched a series on good old British television. They seem to be the only one that put out decent programs these days. Sorry, any Americans, who might be here. I watched a series put out by BBC called Barbarians Rising. It's a rated series, but very well put together. And what this series traced was, it traced the, the rise of of ancient Rome coinciding with the struggles that it experienced and its final demise owing to the brutal attacks of surrounding barbarian tribes. The barbarians were any ones who did not speak Greek, by the way, who were foreigners to Rome. That's why even Israel in Romans' time weren't considered as barbarians because they spoke Greek. And so these barbarians, they fought with often guerrilla terrorist-type tactics of their day. They did so in order to restrain Rome's brutal occupation and to reinstate the former lands or hopefully that they Rome had taken from them and one aspect that stood out to me was that although Rome with its might and its superior military power they won battle after battle after battle they won many battles against these barbarians over 400 plus years but they never won the war There was always barbarians on each battle who escaped and went into hiding, escaped the sword and they kept their hatred of the Romans alive and they passed that on to the next generation. Paul in these last four chapters lets his readers know that in the power of the Holy Spirit, a battle against false teachers in Corinth had been won, but he knows that he has not won the war. Genuine repentance, as we've discussed and looked at this series, genuine repentance and restoration had taken place in this Corinth assembly, this Corinth church. The assembly, can we say, was on track again, spiritually speaking. And Paul is confident, we have looked at that, of their love for Christ and Himself. And it will prove itself in their abundant giving, which we have just finished. Paul knows this, but Paul is not naive. He is wise enough to know that some of the false teachers and a few of those who choose to follow them would still be lurking in the shadows. It's a bit like children of Israel, remember? Those who were redeemed out of Egypt and and they went into the promised land and under the leadership of Joshua, they won battle after battle after battle. But they never won the war. They never won the war to this very thing. And so back to Corinth here, though not dominant force, these false teachers and the few that followed them, though not a dominant force and having the authority in the church as they did before, and more than likely what happened, they went underground and they were biding their time to attack again. That's what happens. And so Paul knows knows this and, and suspects this as a real possibility, so he takes no chances, as it were, and in these next four chapters of this book, he goes into battle again. You got that? That's what he does in these next four chapters. And what he does here, right at the outset, he uses the imagery of a soldier a soldier going to war against these villains who would seek to destroy the unity of the church and defile the truth of the gospel and to denigrate his authority as an apostle. And so Paul's battle plan, can we say, is two-pronged. Is two-pronged. The first is this, the first prong of his attack is these next four chapters right to the end of the book of 2nd Corinthians. And this is where he searches out and he addresses these false teachers and those deluded malcontents still blindly following them. He addresses these people. That's his first prong of attack. And his first second prong of attack is when he will visit them in person a couple of months after they had received this letter. This is where he meets them face to face and we can read about that in chapter 13 verse 1 of this chapter, of this book. So these next four chapters are primarily addressed to, to this minority, can we say, in Corinth being the false apostles or the Judaizers and their misguided followers. So how does Paul begin this battle with evil in Corinth? Because it was evil. Anything that's against God is evil, right? No matter how smooth and cool it may look. How does he begin this battle? Well, he portrays himself, as I said before, as a soldier ready to fight with spiritual enemies. That's how he portrays himself. He's a soldier ready to fight with spiritual enemies. And in doing this, what he does, he's our example to follow. This is what I want you to get this morning. He is our example here for us to follow when we face such battles, whether that battle be with our own way of thinking or where we are ourselves spiritually, or whether it be others who would be attacking the faith and attacking the local church. So the first point that I've got here is a good soldier is compassionate And courageous. We see this in verses one and two. So Paul makes it quite clear that he's addressing this minority group of potential troublemakers. And although they weren't dominant, as I've said before, they had the potential to be like those barbarians and often use, who often use guerrilla tactics and to upset, uh, those who were remaining. And so Paul knew that these Judaizers and their followers would stick to their old plan. That would be of questioning his apostolic authority and the gospel of God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He knew that's where they would go. And he understood that they needed to be dealt with. He knew that lurking among this mainly repentant assembly was a danger that would not go away by itself. So rather than stick his head in the sand like an ostrich, he goes on the offensive in these four chapters against these remaining troublemakers. And here he fronts up to them with these words, Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Let's stop right there. These words do not seem like a soldier who is following an offensive battle plan, do they? After all, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. They, they kind of sound soft and lenient and yeah... Didn't sound like a soldier going into battle, but he was a man, folks, he was a man, listen to this, he was a man like the Lord Jesus, who was concerned about the needs of people. That's why he implores them, he uses the word, I urge, that's why he urges them to be responsive to him. Just like Jesus, when he wept over Jerusalem. He longed for that hardened, burdened people of that city that they might come to him. And he wept over it. And so Paul himself also shed tears over this rebellious few who long and longed to see them reconciled. Just like the rest of the assembly. So what Paul does, like any good soldier, is that he makes sure he first expresses his reluctance to do battle with this minority. You see, folks, a worthy soldier, an honourable soldier, will only reluctantly engage in battle with his foes. And when he does, it will only be when all other options are ruled out. So before Paul goes to battle with these enemies of the gospel, rather than use his apostolic right and power, he had power that we don't even have in our day. Remember Peter? and Ananias and Sapphira came in and poof, they dropped dead. Not that Paul was going to do that or wanted to do that, but he had power, he had right to say things directly from God. So rather than use that, what does he do? He shows compassion. That's the start of his battle plan. He does this by expressing two characteristics, can I say here, two characteristics that characterise the Lord Jesus' life. He, Paul displayed the same meekness and gentleness that the Lord showed when he ministered on earth. In other words, as Jesus loved his enemies, Paul did too. Meekness and gentleness must, gentleness must be at work in the life of anyone who is going to be genuinely compassionate. But in saying that, please know this, that to be meek, to be meek is not to be confused with being weak. And that's exactly what Paul was being accused of here by these malcontents back in Corinth. The accusation against Paul was that he was big and brave and outspoken in his letters, but when face to face he was nothing but a wimp. That's what they were saying. That's what they were bandying about. In other words, they said this guy is all talk and bold when he's at a distance, but when he's in our faces, he pulls back and he sure does lack courage. So what kind of apostle can he be? That's the kind of malicious accusations these Judaizers were throwing around about Paul. They confused his meekness with weakness. Now the word meekness along with gentleness are two aspects or actions of people who show true humility. Kind of all wrapped up here together. One cannot be without another. In other words, to be truly humble involves meekness and gentleness. Have a look at, have a think about the word meekness. It has behind it the idea of, of, of an attitude of heart where one is so free of anger and hatred and desire for revenge in any shape or form and is able to love those who are against you. That's a good checkpoint for us all to run across our own personal grid, isn't it? Am I characterized by that kind of meekness? Where I'm free from any kind of anger or hatred and desire for revenge That I'm able to love someone who has come out against me? Meekness, by the way, was used in its Greek culture of a wild horse when it was broken in. Broken in and there the horse willingly submitted to the bit and the bridle and its rider. Or a similar thing of, you know, those great oxen that when they put that yoke on its shoulder, it submitted to the yoke and then continued doing the task that its owner did. And so meekness in itself carries the idea of strength now being under control. Whereas gentleness or kindness is a word used for the, for the gracious way that we, the believer, treats others. In other words, gentleness is where grace and lenience are shown against someone or to someone who is against us, rather than exacting the full rights of the law or giving someone what they deserved, and that could take shape in many ways and forms, cannot. Someone snubs us, someone says something nasty to us. Say, okay, I'll get them back. I won't speak to them for the next six months. That's not gentle. That's not showing meekness either. Paul showed meekness and gentleness, strength under control, and generous leniency. But of all the people this world has ever known, the perfect example of being meek and gentle was the Lord Jesus, right? He had all the power, just listen to this, he had all the power and authority of God Almighty himself, for he was God in the flesh. He had everything at his disposal, and yet he humbled himself, and he was submissive and obedient to the will of his Father. He was a servant. The Gospel of Mark tells us Jesus was surely power and authority under control. He was meek and lowly at heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine tells us. He even applauds meekness when he preached that sermon, that great sermon on the mount. Blessed are the meek. Matthew 5, 5. But oh how gentle he was. Oh how gentle he was. He was lenient and gracious to those who suffered and especially to those who were even against him. And we can resonate with that, can we not? As believers, prior our salvation, whether we like it or not, the scriptures of truth tell us that we were the enemies of God. We were against them. Matthew five tells us that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What leniency! What grace! What gentleness! It is said of his gentleness toward the hurting and the vulnerable. In Matthew 11 and 20, a bruised reed he shall not break and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Describing those who are suffering and vulnerable, he is gentle towards them. He cried from the cross about those who were his enemies. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, 37. So there's the supermodel of gentleness and meekness. And because Paul took seriously the call of the Lord Jesus, what was the call? A call to all of us, by the way, "Take my yoke." You get the picture? You think of the ox, you think of the horse, strength under control. And Jesus said, "Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart." Matthew 11:29. And so because Paul understood the requirement of a disciple of Jesus, he goes all out to imitate the Lord. He he holds back, he restrains himself from, from his exerting his full rightful apostolic discipline. It's a last resort. Folks, how sad it is. when too often the Lord's people show very little meekness and gentleness. Too often what happens and what often happens is with little restraint, saints seem to love launching into a fight. They react to others with selfishness rather than gentleness. And we can all fall into this trap. It almost seems that some love to fight, they love to bicker, they love to argue, they love to sulk, rather than show any restraint at all, rather than showing any meekness and gentleness. Some believers are so prickly about the smallest ridiculous things, they get offended and they retaliate uh, and they give someone an earful uh, who they think deserves it, or they may even leave the church or they may choose to snub you, slander you for years. How sad that is. That's not how, not how it should be, right? That's not how it should be. But the problem at Corinth was that Paul's enemies in Corinth confused his uh, his meekness and gentleness with cowardly weakness, and they accused him of being inconsistent in their in his approach to them. And this is what they say: they "Say in your letters, Paul, you are a, you are a hard man. You are full of tough words, but in our faces, you become wimpish." That was their charge. Really? You just think of this. Really? Paul a wimp. Look at his history. Just looking at his history just tells otherwise. He faced hostile mobs. He, went, he, he was imprisoned imprisoned how many times? He, he, he suffered beatings over and over. He suffered three times at shipwreck. There were plots on his life. He confronted emperors, he confronted kings, He refuted false doctrine, and we could go on and on. That's not the story of a wimp, folks. He was super courageous. Super courageous. He was daring, fearless, and he never would back off if the church was threatened. What Paul is saying in these two verses here is that his deep desire is that there might be genuine repentance before he visits them. And he does this with meekness and gentleness. He does not want to be bold. That's what our that text says. He doesn't want to be bold. He, does, he doesn't want to be angry and stern with them, righteously angry and righteously stern with them when he sees them face to face. He doesn't want to wield his apostolic authority and his in a disciplinary manner when he comes. He doesn't want to do that. And so he pleads with them not to force his hand to confront them because if they do, make no mistake, he will do it. He says, what did he say here? He will be courageous against some. Courageous against some. Those who continue to rebel, that's what it means. You see, Paul was no wimp. Like the Lord Jesus, when confrontation was needed, he fearlessly dealt it out. Remember when Jesus fronted up to the Pharisees and scribes on one occasion in Matthew chapter 23? And time was up for these guys. He'd spoken to them, and you can remember numerous occasions where he just dealt out grace and mercy and offers of the kingdom and salvation and and all these things, but time was up. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Wow. Wow. Even today, you know, a lot of people like the idea of Jesus being gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and nothing else. But the scriptures bears out that he's bold and courageous. He is a lamb, as we've sung this morning, as well as a lion, folks. Make no mistake about that. He's saviour as well as judge. He will dish out deserved eternal punishment to those who reject his gracious offer of salvation and mercy. He really will and he will do that. And this is the idea of what Paul is saying here. To these disobedient few. He is appealing to them in meekness and gentleness to repent. And if they do not, he will deal with those rebels face to face when he visits them. He says those who regard us as if we walked in the flesh, they accuse them of being selfishly motivated. Okay, so that's what they mean. Those who say that we are wimps when we are with them and courageous when at a distance, he says, I will confront them fearlessly. Paul was ready to wage war if necessary, especially if the unity of the assembly and gospel truth was on the line. You verified this, by the way, in chapter 13 of this book, and this is what he says, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So even in his severity, even in his courageous and his disciplining acts, it wasn't for tearing down, it was for building up. We all know this principle, right? Sunday school teachers, mums and dads and families, school teachers, it's a principle that runs all the time. You know, if, if you allow someone to get away with thing and rebel and, and it's like a rotten apple in the rest of the case... You've got to deal with that one person. You've got to, in the end, come down on them and deal with them because it will infect the rest. And so, as we come across courageous and even with our own thinking and our own discipline, it's, it's for the betterment, it's for the building up, not for tearing down. Even when that's the same idea when it comes to discipline in the assembly of God's people. It's not for caning someone. It's for building up of the assembly, protecting the flock. And so Paul would go to battle if need be. He was courageous and fully equipped to meet these enemies of the cross head on. He was no wimp. Today we have a wimp problem in the church. I honestly believe. We have a big wimp problem. All in the name of tolerance. Tolerance and political correctness too often and most often is nothing but being wimpish of leaders in the church not wanting to offend and so we'll make room for that one make room for this sin make room for that sin that's wimpish the question needs to be asked as believers are we equipped with this meek and gentle attitude that extends grace and mercy before we confront with any kind of severity. And it's only forever building up. Are we equipped? This brings us to our second point, and our last one, I might say. A good soldier is ready and resolute. We see this in verse 3 and 3 to 6. He says, as well as being compassionate and courageous toward his enemy, a good soldier of Jesus Christ must also be ready for battle and uh, resolute in carrying out his mission. And the Apostle Paul was exactly that. As was the Lord Jesus, who being the Lamb of God's providing, what did he do? It tells Scriptures tell us he set his face toward Jerusalem. He was determined to go up to Jerusalem, knowing that at Jerusalem was the cross. And the horrors of the cross and Calvary, the judgment, the lashing, the crucifixion, the death of his person. But he was resolute in his mission. We see that Paul plays on the use of their words here in verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not... War according to the flesh. You see, that accused them of being selfishly motivated and where they say it in verse two, but Paul picks up their own words and he uses these words against them, but in a very different way, meaning it's something very different. Though we walk in the flesh, what he says there is, although I am an ordinary man of flesh and blood, just like anyone else. That's what he's saying here. Although I'm a fragile clay pot, like he said back in chapter four, verse seven. We do not war according to the flesh. That is, we do not fight evil, we do not go into combat against the world and all its evil systems, depending on our own human abilities and intellectual initiatives. That's what he's saying here. I'm just an ordinary flesh and blood and bones man, just like you, but we do not fight these battles on the same ground, using the same weapons. Those human endeavours, no matter how sincere, will never work, folks. The battle belongs to the Lord when it comes to spiritual battles, right? And please note, every genuine believer is in this battle, this engagement of spiritual warfare, because this is what it is. There are no exemptions. Every single one of us are in a spiritual war. We're all soldiers who have to do battle with the kingdom of darkness, who is the... The God, little g, of this world, we see in chapter 4-4 of this letter as well. And that will be always like it until the Lord comes. We're either attacked personally, we're attacked as families, our marriage is attacked, morality is being attacked, ethics are being attacked, churches like this are being attacked we're in a spiritual war whether you like it or not you're going to be a good soldier you're going to be a wimp so what do we use in this battle? scriptures tell us the weapons that are divinely powerful that's what it says, in other words fleshly weapons like human ingenuity intellectualism, clever rhetoric strategies, plans, communication skills, psychology, you name it The world, and sadly the church, clings to this thing as if they were our key to winning our spiritual battles. So much of the church has gone down the slippery slide of clinging to earthly strategies and earthly means to win these kind of battles that can only be won by the Lord himself. None of those things, folks, are any match for what it takes for the destruction of fortresses. You see that? We're really into the military engagement here. Paul's really getting carried away under the, uh, the spirit of God here using this military terminology. Destruction of fortresses. You see, this is our battleground. The enemy we face every day is described here as fortresses. Now, when you think of fortresses, you can picture in your mind like right, you are now with these great big walls, and you're very right. But fortress has the idea of a stronghold. It's a place of refuge where everyone ran and took to and hid behind the walls against the invading enemy. But often in history, often in history, those very fortresses became tombs. Just to... Some of us here have been to Masada. Masada is a fortress that was used by... It was built by Herod, actually, but the Jews actually used it in AD 70 after the sacking of Jerusalem. This is all extra biblical uh, history. And, and there was a thousand Jews, at least, went up there and escaped into this fortress. Ha <laughs> <laughs> we've got it nailed. And the Roman army camped around them. And you can still see the encampments or the, what's left of the, the encampments of the Roman army. Anyway, they built a big siege. Jews obviously started to get a bit of a concern because they built this big siege ramp where they drove up their big siege machines. And when they knew that their day was up, 960 Jews committed suicide inside their fortress. It became their tomb. They thought it was safe, but it became their tomb. You see, the God of this world, little g, the God of this world, Satan himself, has developed such fortresses that sinful man in a sin blinded delusion, just like the little rebels back in Corinth, they think they're in a safe place. They think they're in the right place. But it can take them to hell. And that's what we war against, folks the spiritual fortresses of Satan. And these fortresses are Satan's strongholds. They're not of bricks and mortar, no. But they are false ideologies, speculations of of men's minds. That's the word speculation there. And verse 5 says, The fortresses are every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what verse 5 means. These are the fortresses energized by Satan himself that need to be smashed down so that captives can be set free. Paul tells the Ephesian church, and Chapter 6 verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is a battle of the mind, folks. That's what it is. Our minds, our own minds, and at the times, minds of sinners, because they are held captive in Satan's fortresses. That's why Romans chapter 12 verse 1 tells us, be ye transformed, this is a word to believers, be ye transformed, how? By going to church more, no, by the renewing of your mind. And these fortresses, these ways of wrong thinking, those who occupy them, you know what they're doing? They raise themselves up against the knowledge of God. This is why spiritual weapons are required to gain victory. The objective of our warfare is to smash down these spiritual fortresses, holding sinners captive by changing how they think. It's a battle for the mind. And as good soldiers, we have to be resolute in that objective upon ourselves and upon any who would oppose the gospel and the unity and the togetherness of the gospel. This is the mission of every good soldier of Jesus Christ, to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see that? That's our mission. That's our mission. In other words, our mission is to engage in this battle using meekness and gentleness, but at all times only divinely powerful weapons. These are the only kind of weapons that will bring down these fortresses of false religion, ideologies and opinions and worldviews. What for? What do you want to bring them down for? answer is to the obedience of Christ. In verse 5. This is another way of describing salvation, by the way. Of obeying the gospel through faith. You know, what a mission. What a battle. What a, what a miracle that takes place here. And that's exactly right. It is a miracle. The transformation of the heart, the transformation of the mind, where one was in darkness and now it has the light of God in them, to be set free from Satan's deception, to be transformed by mind and heart. is is being renewed, it can be described as nothing else than a miracle. It's not just a change of mind or turning over a new leaf. This is a change from within. How true it is, we even have to battle with our own minds at times, don't we? And we're called to do that. Culture would invade us and have us think like they think. And would tempt us that this is a safe fortress to be in, to be tolerant, and to be ex- politically correct, and and to make room uh, for this and that, which the Bible calls sin. No, no, no. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, and that is through the Scriptures. It's a miracle, this transformation. It's born out of God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Or as the reformers termed it, sola gratia, sola fide and sola Christos. You must never move away from that, folks. And we're the Lord's soldiers. We're the Lord's soldiers. And he gives us the right arsenal. Carrying on this military imagery here. He gives us the right arsenal to bring him glory in our service for him. And the only weapon that we are to use is so obvious, I might say here. It's so obvious that Paul doesn't even mention it. Mention it heaps in other places, but here he doesn't even mention it. It's so obvious. Because for the Christian soldier, it must be the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, Ephesians 16. Amen. It's got to be the sword of the spirit. Once again, even Ephesians, he uses military imagery. It's the truth. Truth about God from his word. Not truth how we think truth or what truth is. It's truth from God's word. It's this truth, God's truth. The truth that sets the captive free, as John 8 verse 32 tells us. Of course, as good Christian soldiers, we need to know how to wield this sort of truth. Amen. We need to know how to wield it. That means knowing your Bible. That was born out last Sunday night. How important it is when we're witnessing to others and even witnessing to ourselves. I hope you do that, by the way. I hope you preach to yourself all the time. Tell yourself about the truth of God's word and how you should be responding to it. But in order to do that, we need to know how to wield this sword. takes learning, That takes discipline, it takes reading. Let us not be like the wayward few who are tempting God's hand of discipline, but let us be obedient in faith and service as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for your time. What I want to do now is close with a benediction and uh, then we'll call it a day. For our time this morning. And I'll ask you to stand. But we'll just have a few moments' silence for you just to speak to the Lord and maybe some confession, maybe some prayer for help in fighting these spiritual battles. And then I'll close with this benediction and then we can enjoy one another's company. If you could just stand, please. benediction is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. May God add a blessing uh, to his word this morning.